This is Exodus 34, verses 10 through 28. And he, that is God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. Sorry, the air is on. <laughs> Let's try that again. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall <clears throat> worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you <clears throat> take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to loosely connect this man and this woman in rather trivial, superficial matrimony. And because it doesn't matter all that much, this wedding ceremony will be short and sweet, more short than sweet. First, do you or you, do either of you have merely a, an a association that is based upon emotions or hormones? 
Great. And will you agree to live together without solemn commitment to each other, so long as it suits your personal and individual independent whims and feelings? And will you respond to any and every given situation and to each other as you see fit in the moment, without regard for the well-being, the happiness, or the holiness of the other? And will you jump ship and, and uh, uh, follow your heart into the next relationship or activity or whatever? At the slightest chance, the grass could be greener or the road could be easier somewhere, anywhere else. Great. Then I now pronounce you in a very pointless, insignificant, and rather absurd marriage. You may shake hands or whatever with your uh, person friend. Now, could you imagine such a wedding ceremony? It, it's, it's ridiculous, right? Because we know that that's not how weddings are supposed to go, because that's not what marriage is supposed to be. In a wedding, you are supposed to be giving a solemn pledge, a sacred oath of covenant faithfulness, because that's what marriage is, right? A covenant of faithfulness, where you commit to fully give yourself to the other person and you commit to fully receive the other person, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Right? That's how it's supposed to be. And most people see that kind of what I laid out as a mock wedding ceremony as a mockery, as something ridiculous, something just to be laughed at. But many people, sadly, they view their covenant with God in much the same way. Whereas God surely should be committed to me, but it's I guess it's okay, right? It should be one-sided. My commitment to him can be just based upon how I feel. And as long as he's doing his part, I will feel as I should feel. This has many different forms and many different phrases or names for it. Some call it easy believism or merely decisionism or antinomianism. You can call it any big name you want, but it's bad. And at the heart of it, there is a desire, there is an assumption that, that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, the end. And that it's an add-on to my life. I'm living my life and God is for me. Hey, great, I'm for me too. It's a Christian without a covenant commitment. But a Christian without a covenant commitment is not a biblical Christian, and so is no Christian at all. These are the people who, who recoil at the call of Jesus. Rico Tice, in his book, Honest Evangelism, says that we can, we can really boil down the gospel presentation in a simplified form into three main categories. The identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. The identity of Jesus is who he is. You must tell people who he is. And then the mission of Jesus, that's what he came to be and do. And while some people can stumble over these things, many will say, okay, sure, that's fine. But then they have to get over the hurdle of the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus, you see, is not just, this is just another teaching that we have, another religion in the world, but we're saying that God says that this is the only one. And that it demands not only your exclusive allegiance and your, and your soul faith in him, but also 
your total surrender and your obedience, or as Jesus says it, you must come and die. And he doesn't put it in the fine print. He doesn't say, well, you know, hey, I'll tell you this. But the good news is, come to me and I will give you life. Yeah, I mean, there's other things later they'll find out about. But really, it's about all that I want to do for you. He says right up front, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. Take up your cross where you will die to yourself and everything else and everyone else and come and follow me. And he says, if, if you don't do that, you might think you're holding on to your life, but you will lose it and you will never find it. Never find true life, abundant life and eternal life. Jesus, you see, in the new covenant, he demands, he calls forth from us covenant commitment. Because a covenant without commitment is meaningless. Just like that insignificant wedding, that pointless marriage ceremony, a covenant without commitment is meaningless. And this is what Moses and the Israelites needed to hear. I know we're in Exodus 34, but um, I preached last week from Exodus 33, and since I'm preaching two weeks in a row, I can cheat. So here we go. Exodus 33, 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Well, what has he spoken? Moses has asked, God, will you go with us? Will you be our God and let us be your people? And will you go with us to bless us? God says, yes, I will do that very thing. And then in verse 18, Moses says, prove it. You said you'll go with us, but now show it. You've professed it. Now would you prove it with, some, with a powerful and practical display of your glory? God, I need reassurance. Give me Show me your glory. And God says, we've learned about last week, that indeed you will behold my glory, but as I proclaim it through my word. But what I didn't talk about last week was the second part of verse 19, where God says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Perhaps what, what, what Moses was doing was, was he was begging God, coming to him saying, God, I need you to, to commit to us. And, and I need to be sure about it. So perhaps he was trying to capture God in a sense. To control him, to bind God, so that he could always ensure that God would be kind to them and bless them and be for them and be with them in their midst. And God says in verse 19b, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Moses, you cannot control me. Nobody captures me. I am the independent and free and sovereign God of the universe. No one binds me. But he says, Moses, you don't have to. Because I'll do you one better. I'll bind myself to you in covenant. In a covenant. We, ha we see here chapter 34, verse 9. Moses says... <clears throat> God, would you please go with us? Would you forgive our sin and take us for your inheritance? It's like Moses is proposing here. Will you have us? Will, will you have us and hold us from this time forth and forevermore? Will you be our God and let us be your people? And God graciously responds with a yes. Verse 10, behold, I am making a covenant. This is where he is confirming this covenant. He's, he's actually reconfirming it because he's already given the covenant for them after giving the commandments and the covenant conditions, the commitments that they were to follow, in chapter 24 of Exodus, we talked about God confirmed, He ratified this covenant, established it. But then they broke it. 
by creating a golden calf and bowing down to it, breaking his commandments. <clears throat> and so he says, I'll make a new covenant. Well, really, the same covenant renewed. But you see what God is doing now is the Lord is reminding them what it means for them to be in a covenant relationship with him because a covenant without commitment is meaningless. And so it's like from Exodus 32 all the way through chapter 33 and 34 all the way to verse 9. Moses had been begging God, will you please commit yourself to us, your people? And will you have us completely? And God says, yes, but will you? Will you? Commit to me. The Lord starts to make it very clear <clears throat> that the covenant involves more than just his commitment to them in chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two, yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written that were on the first tablets which you broke. These two stone tablets, the first ones, had written on them what words? The words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. What the people were called to do. What God was calling them forth to commit to. And he says, bring up two more stone tablets. Just like the ones that you broke. Why did Moses break them? Because the people already broke the commandments. And he was symbolizing that very thing. Then we have in Exodus 20, uh, 34, verses 27 and 28. Last two verses of our section for today. Exodus 34, 27 and 28. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Well, what words? Words most likely of 10 through 26, which highlight the commandments of God, what He is calling them to be committed to in this covenant relationship. Write those words because it's in accordance with these words that this covenant even exists. So, verse 28, he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. This is miraculous. God sustained him so that he could hear these words again. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. What are the words of the covenant? The Ten Commandments. The law of God. The commitments that God is calling them to. Verse 11, the first part, God says, simply observe what I command you this day. Obey what I am telling you to do. And then in 17 through 26, he says, You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall not do this. You shall do this. You shall not do this. You shall do this. He's giving them commandments, which are covenant commitments. In this covenant relationship, you are to be committed to me in this relationship doing these things. He's saying, Moses, you want to make sure I'm committed to you? Well, I am. I am committed to you. Are you to me? Will you be committed to me? Well, then why didn't he just ask that? Why the commandments? Why does he have to lay out all these rules again? We've already talked about. Why not just ask them, like you do in a wedding ceremony, right? Will you promise? Do you vow? Do you pledge? Will you do this? And you answer, yes, or I will, or I do. Why the commandments? Well, <clears throat> in this covenant reconfirmation with these covenant commitments the commands are needed because of the covenant circumstances and the circumstances of the covenant are the holy god is making a covenant with a sinful people with a stiff-necked people verse 9 the israelites needed the reminder that god demands and deserves and he calls forth their covenant commitment 
They needed the reminder because the natural bent of sinful flesh is to turn away from God to whatever is, at least seems better or feels easier at the moment. That's a natural bent of sinful flesh. And I say natural because of verse 12. Exodus 34, 12, take care, he says. That is, be careful, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that if you're not careful, if you're not intentionally active about preventing this, it will happen naturally. You will make a covenant with the peoples around you and worship their gods. Your commitment to me will fall away. The reason then that they needed is the same reason we need God's commandments. We need to have this commitment to God because if we don't accept, if we don't receive continually so, not just once, but continually all the time embracing God's covenant with us in Christ, then we will make a covenant with the gods around us and the peoples around us. In the world, we will love the things of the world the way the world loves them. The reason then that we need to commit to God, the reason we need this covenant that has covenant commitments in it is because as sinners, even as sainted sinners, we don't always naturally choose that which is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. We don't always naturally choose Him. We will choose other things, other gods to worship. So we must commit to Him. That commitment must be more than just our words because sadly our word is not our bond as it should be. And so we are, just as the Israelites were, called not only to say our commitment to God, but to show it. We are to not only profess our covenant commitment to Jesus, but to prove it. You say, so is that why God gave them commandments? So that their commitment that they gave with their mouth should be seen, it could be seen in their lives? Yes. But more than that. More than that, because our ability to be truly committed to Jesus Christ. Our ability to be committed to God in this covenant with Christ. Our ability to take up our cross daily, to deny ourselves daily, and to follow Him wherever He leads. Our ability to do that is really, really poor. So we need God's grace. We need His help. And God knew that they needed it. He knows we need it. He knows that we need practical action steps. And that's what these commandments are. He lays down these commandments to say, let me show you how you can practically engage with me as your covenant God. And let me give you these commandments because they're practical action steps to help express and preserve and strengthen your commitment to Him. Look at Exodus 34, verse 13. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. These were the things that these other nations used to worship their gods. He says, destroy them. Why? Verse 15 says, because if you don't, you will make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you will eat of his sacrifice. And you will take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters will whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. The language he uses here is graphic. It's, he's talking about it as if you leave him, you're abandoning him, you're breaking your covenant vows. It's like adultery. It's like prostitution. You're going after other gods, loving the world the way they do. You're abandoning me. But you see what he says here. Verse 13 is a commandment. Tear down the things they use to worship their gods because if you don't do, obey that commandment, you won't keep your commitment to me. Or to put it positively, 
in order to keep, in order to preserve and strengthen your covenant commitment to me, obey this command. He gives us our, His commands so that we will keep our covenant with Him. That we will continue in, that we will be able to express and preserve and strengthen our commitment to Him. Friends, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so we need the commandments of God to tether our hearts to Him. I, I felt this even just recently, practically in my own life, when God gives me a command to obey, and I do it, it not only gives me greater proof, and therefore others, and gives me assurance of my commitment to Him, but it also strengthens it. It preserves my commitment to the Lord Jesus. You know, every good teacher knows <clears throat> that when you give a quiz, when you give a, a test or an exam, it, it, it doesn't just show what they know. It actually helps them to know it better. The test itself not only proves their knowledge, it improves their knowledge. It doesn't just reveal what they have learned, it helps them to learn it better. It's a teaching tool, not just an evaluative tool. So too with the commandments. They don't just prove our commitment to God, they actually help us. They increase our covenant commitment to Him. That's why He gives us His commands. So we need Him. But God knows that we need more than that. Because our ability to stay committed to Him is in such peril in this world and because of our sinful flesh, we need not only to give a commitment to Him, and we need His commands to preserve and strengthen that commitment, we also need His consequences. In order for us to keep our covenant commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, we also need the encouraging promises and the terrifying warnings of God. The covenant consequences are necessary because we, of our covenant circumstances, that we are a stiff-necked people. And the consequences are just, they're positive and negative. It's just the result, the outcome of things. We find the negative here in verse 14. <clears throat> he says, You shall destroy the things that they use to worship their gods, because you shall worship no other god. Because for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. This is a warning. Albeit it's somewhat veiled, it is a, a serious and terrifying warning. If you do not obey my commandment to worship me alone, if you abandon me and do not keep my covenant, you will have to deal with the jealousy of God. Now that might, again, we've talked about this previously in Exodus 20 on the Ten Commandments on the Second Commandment. And much of what I said there I, I think bears repeating because we need to hear it again. The, because the idea of jealousy... It seems like it's a petty thing. It seems like it is a, a sinful thing even. Like the God of the universe, why, He shouldn't be jealous. That doesn't make any sense for Him, right? But indeed, it is what the Bible says about God. So we need to understand this as accommodated language. That this is language that, that the Bible uses, that God gives, because we are humans in order to understand something of the divine essence, we need to have a human kind of understanding. But make no mistake, God is not a human. And this, His jealousy is not a human emotion. It's His virtue. It's not what He feels, it's who He is. And that determines how He responds. And it's because of this, He's committed to His covenant relationship that He is jealous. You see, if God didn't care about us, 
then if we abandon him and worship something else, then he wouldn't care. He wouldn't be jealous because he would say, good riddance. Let him go. I'm relieved. But because he is committed to us and he values this covenant relationship and because he loves us, he is jealous for our commitment to him. Out of love. And if we didn't belong to him, then he couldn't be jealous. He could be envious because you can be envious of that which doesn't belong to you. But if it rightly belongs to you, it's rightly yours, then you can be jealous for it. And if he didn't deserve our complete allegiance, our total surrender, our humble faith, if he didn't deserve our full commitment, fiercely so, then maybe he shouldn't be jealous, but he does deserve it. And infinitely more than we give him. Doesn't he? And if it wasn't the absolute best thing for us to live a life fully committed to Jesus, then maybe we would have a leg to stand on to say that he shouldn't be jealous. But it is for our good. It's for our everlasting good and for our fullness of joy that we are committed to Jesus in this covenant relationship. So God demands. He calls forth our covenant commitment, warning us with His jealousy because He deserves it, because we, we, it's good for us and because we need it. We need Him not only to be committed to us and to call forth our commitment to Him and to give us commandments, but also to warn us that if we don't, it will not go well with us. We need that warning. In order for it to be an effective warning, though, a motivating reason, it actually must mean something. It is, again, it's not a feeling he has. It's who he is. And it's how he acts. So this is an active jealousy of negative consequence. In Exodus 20, verse 5, God says that his jealousy means that he visits iniquity. That is, he brings judgment upon sin and sinners. Those who abandon him and they recoil from the call and they do not commit to him he will bring judgment. This is meant to be preventative. He tells us beforehand so that we will stay committed to Him. That's what the warning is for. It's to encourage our commitment to Him. But the highlight of Exodus 34 <clears throat> of the consequences is not in the negative but in the positive. He says in verse 10, And He said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. Do you notice what he just said there? I'm making a covenant, and the first thing I'm going to say about the covenant is not what you should do, but what I will do. I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God does His awesome, marvelous works for His people, and He's promising that to them. He's promising these blessings. This is His covenant commitment to His people. And then verse 11, the second part says, Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of people. He's saying, I will drive out from you. They will be afraid of you, and you will have power over them, and you will take the spoils of their land. I'm giving it to you. This is His marvelous works He does for His people. It's a blessing. Look at verse 24. He says, For I will cast out nations before you. Not just a, a few people out of your way so you can be in front of the line. I'm, all nations will scatter from you so I can give you the land. I will enlarge your borders. And then He adds, No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. When you obey Him <clears throat> to come up to His feast to worship God, you don't even need to lock the door on your land. 
because I will secure it. I'm going to save you, sustain you, bless you, do all these marvelous works for my people and God's covenant commitments to his people are meant, is meant to encourage their commitment to him. Because of what I'm committing to you, you be committed to me. But you say, um, these promises, these covenant commitments were for the Israelites in the Middle East a long time ago. Not for Christians living in America today, right? You're right. You're right. So does that mean that these covenant commitments, these promises are worthless? Far from it. Far from it. Because think about it. If God's covenant commitments... His blessings, His promised blessings to His people in the Old Covenant were so marvelous and awesome. How much more marvelous, more awesome, more glorious are His covenant commitments to His people in Jesus Christ in the New Covenant? The New Covenant has better promises. They are superior because the covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, is superior. So in the New Covenant, God promises not to remove Perizzites and Hittites. I don't know any of those people. Not to give us some small patch of land in the Middle East. His covenant promises are every spiritual blessing and all that pertains to life and godliness. That's what He promises to us. These covenant commitments to us then are meant to encourage our commitment to Him, but it does more than that. His commitments, His spiritual blessings also mean that He ensures our commitment to Him. This is new. This is different. This is new covenant stuff. In the old covenant, God's His commitment to them encouraged their covenant commitment. And it does that for us today in the new covenant, but it also ensures that we will be committed to Him. Or as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that, that He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. He will help you keep your commitment to Him. Or as He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. That's passive voice. Be kept. Something or someone else is keeping you, preserving you for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's doing that? Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you to be faithful to him, he who calls forth your commitment to him, is saying he's committed to not only encouraging your commitment, but ensuring it. That he will work in you, both to will and to work for his good purposes. Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the author and completer of our commitment to him. And so to be sure, God is far more committed to us than we are to him. It could not be otherwise. But if we truly understand if we truly trust Him, if we truly love Him for His gracious commitment to us, and oh, they are gracious. His commitment to us is gracious because we don't deserve it. And we could never earn it. We prove it, don't we, over and over again, that His commitment to us is a gracious commitment. But if we understand this gracious commitment, and we trust in it, and we love Him for it, then we will never be content with our weak and wavering commitment to Him. No, we will long for our, 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 this covenant relationship where we engage with Him, where we long for our commitments in Him, to Him, in Christ, to be expressed, not just said, but to be shown and proved and preserved and strengthened. 
Do you want that? Do you long for your commitment to not be so weak and not be so wavering that the whims of your sinful flesh, the cares of this world, make you wonder, oh, am I going to stay committed to Him or not? Don't you want it to be stronger? Don't you want your commitment to be preserved? Then what do you do? I'm going to give you two quick applications. You know, those who see the covenant with God in Christ, like that mock marriage ceremony I said in the beginning, those who see and think like, well, God loves me, and Jesus died for me, so I'm good, the end, or listen, those who feel that way, even if they don't think or talk that way, those who feel that that's how it should be, when they read Exodus 34, they take a sigh of relief. They read Exodus 34 and they go, whew, I am glad that I'm under the New Testament, the New Covenant, not the Old. Man, am I glad that I'm no longer under the law, but under grace. I, I just, I, it was baffled this week. I read a, a, a Bible commentary from a guy who said, the good news of the gospel is that Exodus 34 doesn't apply to us. He's not only sorely mistaken, it is sad because he is very, very much missing out. So my applications are two. I want to help you to know how to read Exodus 34 and then respond to it. And by the way, many people who have that kind of view of God that says, he can commit to me, and the gospel is about what he does for me, the end, and there's no call for me to come and die, to take up my cross and follow Jesus. They won't even read Exodus 34 most of the time. Because what's the point? They don't see the importance of it. They don't see the beauty and benefit of it. They don't see the necessity that they, their commitment to Him needs. So specifically, I want to help you to understand when you pick up your Bible tomorrow and you read any, not just Exodus 34, but any of the laws of God, the commands of God in the Old Covenant, how do you read them? And then two, how do you respond to them? First, when you read the commands of God in the Old Covenant, how do you read them since Jesus has come? That's not a small thing. It's a very important question. Because Jesus has come, and He has undeniably changed how we relate to the law of God. He has altered the context of His precepts. That is, these rules, these commandments of God. And as we talked about through the Ten Commandments, when we were preaching each of these commandments, each of these precepts, they have, they have an uh, initial audience in a certain context under the Old Covenant, which is not true for us today. So when we read of feasts and of Sabbaths and of sacrificial systems, we say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Do we just walk away and forget it? No, no, no. What we do then is we seek to peel back behind that first layer of the precept and find the principle behind it. What is the general idea? What is the truth that undergirds it all? The meaning behind it? I want to see, God, why you gave this precept. Not just what it says, but why. Because these, pre these, these uh, precepts, where they may be obsolete because of Christ, the principle is unchanging and perpetually binding for every one of us. 
And so we seek to see behind the precept, to see the principle, and go behind that even and see the person of God because all of His laws, all of His commandments flow out of who He is so that you can be stay committed to and grow in your commitment to Him. That's how we should read them. And for more, just maybe help in this, just thinking through this, go back and listen to our, com- our sermons through the Ten Commandments. Or maybe just that first message on the introduction to the Ten Commandments and how we should read the Old Covenant commands of God. But after we read it, and we seek to see behind the historical context of the precept, and we see the theological and the practical issues of the principle and the person of God, how do we respond? How do we respond to the commands of God, both in the Old Testament and the New? And by some count, there are over a thousand commands in the New Testament alone. So how do you respond to the commandments of God in all the Bible? especially since we are New Covenant Christians. Is it the same as Old Covenant Christians? Do we do it the same? No, we don't. We need to respond differently. What's that look like? Well, Very simply, when you come to a command of God in any part of the Bible, you should renew your covenant commitment with glad-hearted obedience. That's the simple answer. Renew your covenant commitment to God with glad-hearted obedience. Obey Him. Trust Him and obey Him with joy. That's the simple answer. But as that's the same for Old and New Covenant Christians. So what's the difference? In the New Covenant, we need to renew our covenant commitment to God in glad-hearted obedience, listen, because of His grace with faith in Christ. Because of His grace with faith in Christ, that's how and why we should be obeying. You know, the difference between how an old covenant, the old covenant people of God would respond to and should respond to God's commands and the new covenant people of God should respond is not this. Sometimes people think this way and it's, it's wrong-headed. Well, in the old covenant, they had to obey. In the new covenant, we don't. That's not it. God still deserves and demands to be obeyed. He's calling forth our commitment. Well, you say, well, okay, in the old covenant then, the difference was that... that They didn't have to trust God for it. Yeah, they did. They had to trust God to help them obey. Right? And they had to trust Him to receive their obedience, though it's flawed, so that means it also was on grace. Because their obedience would have been imperfect. And they needed to trust that God would still graciously receive their obedience. So what's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant and our obedience is this. The faith in the Old Covenant that motivated their committed obedience, that faith was faith in God's grace in general, faith that God would accept them and faith that God would help them. But the faith that moves us to obey in the new covenant not only has that general aspect but a specific focus on Jesus Christ. That specific focus is that God's grace comes to us in Jesus Christ and specifically in His obedience. His obedience in His life and in His death. The the issue being one of focus. You see, in the old covenant, the Jews in the, in the Old Covenant, what they were to do was to focus on their obedience to God. But in the New Covenant, we are still called to obey, but our obedience is not on our obedience, but on His, that Jesus obeyed in our place. In the Old Covenant, one was graciously blessed by God because of His faith-filled obedience. I want to say that again. In the Old Covenant, If someone obeyed with faithful obedience, they were graciously blessed because of their faithful obedience. 
But in the new covenant, we are still blessed in response to our faith-filled obedience, but ultimately and decisively because of Christ's faith-filled obedience. The decisive factor for why I am blessed today with every spiritual blessing is in Christ. I dare not trust in my obedience. That is sinking sand. Let us stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and His obedience in our place. Ultimately, we must obey. He deserves it. He's calling forth our commitment. And so He blesses us in response to our obedience, but ultimately and decisively, He blesses us because of Christ's obedience in our place and our faith in Him. So the focus, the focus of the Old Covenant was on what people were to do. We are still called to do in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And yet... Our focus is on what Christ has already done and what He has promised. Our faith in Jesus ought to cause us to read and respond to Exodus 34 not with a sigh of relief that we don't have to obey it, with a gratefulness that Jesus has and with an eagerness, therefore, an encouragement knowing that His commitment to us in Christ means that we get to grow in our obedience to Him. Our faith in Jesus ought to stir up our covenant commitment to Christ. Our faith in Jesus ought to, to cause us to engage with God and express and to preserve and to strengthen our commitment to Him. Not pull back, not pull away from obedience, but to pull in, push into it. To be motivated to obey all the more with glad hearts because of our faith in His grace. This is God's covenant commitment to us in Christ. That He has calling forth our commitment and that He is encouraging our commitment by His commitment in Christ. But He's also ensuring our commitment to Him, our obedience to Him, our faith in Him because of His grace in Christ. And this commitment of God's to us is highlighted in the covenant meal, communion, the Lord's Supper. And so too, this, this communion meal is a time for us to highlight and to renew our covenant commitment to Him. So this morning, if you are not trusting and God's covenant commitment to you to give you every spiritual blessing only through His grace in Christ. If your faith isn't there, then don't partake of communion. Not, don't do that this morning. Set it down. And bow your heads. Maybe get on your knees and ask God, beg Him to open your eyes to the truth of your need for Jesus and His beautiful all-sufficiency for you. And then come and talk to me afterwards or one of the other pastors or put it on a connection card or email us that you want us to talk to you more about it. But this morning, if you are trusting in Christ, you've had your humble faith, your, your obedient, surrendered heart to Christ affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church, then I invite you to take your communion cup and take the wafer out that represents the body of Christ, broken for sinners, that He is the one that by His commitment encourages and ensures ours. Take in faith. In the same way, take the juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ that He poured out for us on the cross. And know that He is committed to us and let that be a motivation to stir up your commitment to Him. Take in faith. Would you please now stand, continuing to renew your covenant commitment to Christ in song.